Hello, and welcome to Reflections. I am Ram Gayuzu, your host. So first of all, thank you so very much for your uh, being here with me and my guest today. Uh, the topic of the show is futurism, so it should be a very fun show. I have two top-notch futurists in the room with me today, I mean, virtual room, and we're going to be discussing a variety of uh, different topics. Uh, so uh, before I actually get started, I need to cover some ground rules. So if you have uh, watched the show before, you can, or if you're listening through Spotify, you can basically fast forward uh, my next three minutes. But if that's your first time joining us today, please bear with me as we go through some of the rules. Everybody's got rules, right? So uh, the Q&A rules. Uh, so because we are broadcasting through a variety of different social media channels, they all have slightly different rules regarding the use of chat or the chat feature. And they can be summarized by the following, you know, just be nice, be polite, uh, be courteous. There's only one golden rule. Absolutely no hate speech is allowed. So if we can uh, obey by those rules, we should have a very fun and nice show. Now, uh, there are several ways for you to submit a question. Uh, you can actually, and the chat is open and you can, you know, submit questions either using the chat box or you can email me at editor at imcimagazine.com or you can use the talk to test feature and text me at 001 for the United States, 480-544-8372. So privacy rules still do apply. I am uh, not gonna you know, save your phone number, save your text. Uh, you're not gonna get some kind of a nonsense promotional item from me okay you have to opt in in order to get all of those great so uh let's get started uh with the agenda for today so the first order of business right uh, what are we going to be doing today well uh, i'm going to have a brief introduction and then uh, we're going to welcome two prominent futurists here in north america sean moffitt from the grace one guild and Silvia Galusa from silicon humanism uh, we are going to, you know, be having Q and A's throughout the day and throughout the uh, the talk. But if you have that last minute burning question, I have saved some time towards the end for additional Q and A. And if we cannot get through all of the questions uh, that you have or comments, what happens is please just leave them in the chat, and I will get to them. I will make sure that uh, you know our guests uh, get all of, all of the questions. I will forward it to them. Uh, they will respond. And then I will send it uh, back to you. So we'll get your questions answered no matter what. And then towards the end, uh, we are going to you know, go through some of the um, upcoming events. So you can see uh, the upcoming agenda or what, what kind of shows we'll have next. Wonderful. So uh, let's move on to the introduction. I wanted just to remind you. So this is Reflections. We are the podcast and live stream partner of IMCI Magazine. You can find us online at uh, www.imcimagazine.com. We are United States Media, an online magazine under the registry 2769-0008. We are a member of Edelweiss America Media, and our focus is on intelligence. You can call it competitive intelligence, market intelligence, economic intelligence, and a good chunk of the work, a good, good, and big chunk of the work of the magazine is on foresight and future studies. And hence, the topic of today is future studies and foresight, right? 
So I wanted to say a few words about the importance of foresight. And so why so much about foresight? Why is foresight important? If you come to think about it, we have always had this anxiety about the future. We've always been afraid of the unknown, right? Uh, since the very beginning. And by the very beginning, I mean literally from the very beginning, uh, from the time of the people in the caves, right? They were afraid of the darkness. They were afraid of what was in the cave or what was outside the cave. And they were very anxious about, you know, is there going to be dinner tonight? Is there going to be foods tomorrow? Is there a tomorrow, right? So if we do some time traveling and we go walk with those people, with the cave people, what would you do? Well, you're walking down the jungle and then, oh, look, uh, there is a path cleared in the middle of the jungle. How convenient is that? Oh, it's fantastic. Hey, <laughs> let's, let's walk to this path, right? Hey, look. There's a funny looking tree over here. It's itchy. All of its bark has been scratched off. Whoa, an itchy tree. And then we approach this hill and see, hey, look at that. It's a dead moose. Free lunch, free lunch. A clear path and free lunch. Ooh, we are rocking today. And then we see, look, there's an opening on the hill. Let's go check it out. Maybe it's our new dwelling. And then you get closer to the opening of the cave and there's this kind of a foul smell in there well somebody's got to do some cleaning right and then you get to the very entrance and then you hear this low volume growling sound coming you know from within you know they're having plenty of signs telling us you know thou shall not come close to this cave this dwelling is already occupied and therefore the 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 occupants are not very happy to see us at their doorsteps right so those, those signs, you know, the, the clear path in the middle of the jungle, right? The itchy tree, the tree of no bark, the, the free lunch, the available dwelling, all those signs are in the business, we call them indicators, right? They're indicators. So in foresight, we use techniques, methodology. We're going to have a lot of discussion about thought processes and we envision a future, near future, uh, distant future. It doesn't matter. And then we go when I look at those indicators or those signs and see, oh, this is more likely, this is less, less likely, this is materializing, this is not. So can we tell, tell you with great accuracy that is indeed a cyber-toothed tiger inside the cave? No, we cannot. Maybe a bear, maybe it's a lion. But we have enough information to say, you know what? It's not a good idea to approach that cave. You know, that free lunch is probably not free, okay? So foresight will operate to reduce the anxiety about the future and foresight will help us deal with the fear of uncertainty right so in the current issue of the magazine i have two also prominent features itai taumi from israel and i have dr katiji simbi from kenya so we have perspectives from israel and perspectives from africa and the prior issue we had people from germany and people from poland issuing you know their views or sharing their views and today, well, today we're going to hear the North America perspective, right? So this is going to be a fun talk. And let me uh, actually, we're going to do uh, something slightly different today. Let me uh, go back to the agenda. We just covered the, the brief introduction about the topic. And I have two guests today. I have Sean Moffitt from the Grace One Guild. And I have Sylvia Galdusser from Silicon Humanism. I'm going to welcome them both at the same time because they're both experts at future studies. Uh, but I will address uh, content from Grace One Guild, and then I'm going to address content from Silicon Humanism. But because they're both experts, uh, I may you know, ask a question here and there, or we may have a very interesting uh, dialogue. 
So um, having said that, uh, let me um, welcome uh, my guests. Uh, so hi, Sean, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having this forum. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And hi, Sylvia, bonjour and welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Ram. Hi, Sean. Wonderful. So uh, I will um, get started with um, uh, content from the Grey Swan Guilds today. So I will uh, start with uh, Sean, basically. Right. So I want to uh, first uh, have you say a few words about uh, the Grey Swan Guild. Right. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an introduction? What is the Grace One Guild? Um, where did it come from? And what are you trying to solve? Please, uh, 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 we want to hear all about it. Well, I'm going to try to muster as much excitement as you had on those cavemen. I, I'm like feeling quite <laughs> buoyant about my caveman life now. But um, on, on a more postmodern bent, uh, we invented this Grace One Guild very much out of the pandemic. Uh, March 12th, 2020 happened. And a number of us stood and said, look, um, what's just gone on here? We're pretty good at this stuff. Why don't we surface a couple of different blog posts? All of a sudden, 40 people came around, 200 people came around. And now we're a global guild of about 2,000 people from around the world wow. who principally have two things at heart. They either want to make sense of their current challenges or they want to make sense of some future gray swans. And so... You know, most of us um, have a real curiosity and inkling about where things are going to go to next. And so we've created this independent and open network of people from around the world that really spark off of trying to figure out kind of the biggest existential questions of the day, whether they're in business or education or society, and try to apply them to their own lives. Wonderful. So uh, why do you call it the Grace Swank Guild? What's in the name? Yeah, it's about a top two or three question when we get new members on board. Um, Gray Swan actually did exist previous to us. I mean, it is an economic term. You've probably heard of Black Swans before in Nassim Taleb's book on the subject, where there are completely weird things that happen in the world that you can't anticipate and you have to react to. Gray Swans are cousins, I guess, of the Black Swan, but Gray Swans are, you know, improbable events but certainly ones that you can consider, you can measure, you can validate, you can look at and tumble about in advance of them happening. And so certainly a pandemic is one of those things. It wasn't like some of us hadn't mentioned through SARS that there was a plausibility. In fact, my own company had done work in 2019 that said that was the 16th most important thing that may happen to us in the future. Well, it turned out, you know, four months after that study, it was the number one uh, thing that um, kind of impacted our world. And so um, I think our mission is to keep companies aware of the fact that most of us don't get to predict the future. Nostradamus, maybe, maybe some people <laughs> that do well at a casino, but most of us can't predict the future, but we certainly can minimize the surprise that confronts us when we're uh, looking into the, uh, the abyss that is the future. Wonderful. So uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the membership, right? So the people who comprise the guild. Uh, can you describe what is the membership like or who are the members or give us a, a quick profile? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll use a pun. Uh, hopefully it's intended and translates well, but like we call it the 50 Shades of Grey Swan. Um, uh, <laughs> nothing to do with the movie of the same uh, name, but... We're definitely a mix of different people, much like futures thinking is. Um, we we love multidisciplinary collisions between people. So we have strategists and planners over here. We have hardcore 
futurists and future thinkers and strategic foresighters over here. We have educators over here. We have um, people that are more curious about the subject and have talents in other areas. So they actually take what we do and turn it into either innovation or business strategy or policy around government. So it's really an amalgam of people that definitely have an interest in the future, but um, certainly we're not one stereotypical version, which I think in our straight makes us quite distinct because I, I look at different groups from around the world and they're great, but they come from a very narrow stripe of thinking. And, and so we've gone quite broad with our umbrella. Now, if I wanted to join, what do I have to do? Uh, the the entry bar is so infinitesimally low, Ram. All you have to do is go to graceswangill.org. There's a couple of different areas on there you can join as a member. Certainly, we're on today. If if you want to join our group, um, certainly um, either message me in chat or uh, you know the best email is info at graceswangill.org, and you can get in now. Having said that, everybody belongs. Everybody's got an open network, but we have different projects and groups that there's certainly different barriers and hurdles to jump over in terms of contributing before we uh, we allow the, the full front doors to be open. I understand. So uh, can you tell me why exactly do people join? What motivates them? What is uh, so attractive about the guild that is, I want to belong? Yeah, no, I, I think it, maybe it's to get the same magic that you've established here with IMCI, because I think you know, we live in a global world. Um, certainly the pandemic has has totally um, given us that that uh, that notion. And I think beyond the fact that we produce some really good intelligence and there's wickedly smart people as part of our group, everybody leaves one of our experiences or reports feeling much smarter. I think at the heart of it is we know that if you're looking at any kind of big problem, particularly one in the future, it's so much better solved by doing it with other people. Uh, a you'll have a better solution. B, it'll be much broader in focus. And C, you'll probably have a lot more fun and engagement along the way and hopefully learning. And so I think um, there's ample amounts of either of those things that um, people come to us. And uh, I just love when people join and fill out our membership form. We actually ask them, like, why do you join? And just the emotional octave range of the answers is so so refreshing and interesting. We, we definitely have interesting groups of people. And I would say, no matter what your professional discipline, they always mention something that they're doing interesting on the side. I think futurists generally have really interesting lives. I'm going to be arrogant enough to say that. Um, they always have kind of weird and interesting and wonderful things that kind of broaden their perspective beyond just their professional discipline. Yeah, one thing that I really like is your approach in terms of diversity. So one of the missions, one, one of the reasons why, the raison d'être, as Silvio would have said, uh, for the magazine is actually the diversity of perspectives. You know, it's, uh, you know, if we, we have a melting pot and we bring, you know, perspectives from all over the world, the analysis, whichever we're trying to achieve will be uh, much better because we have so many more, the plurality of voices. So I, I think the work you guys do bringing so many different voices is actually very exciting. And well, hence the reason why I invited you to come to the show and oh, great. Say a, few, a few words about, about what you do. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about the technicality aspects of, of the work you do. So you, you touch on futurism, on, on foresight, on, on futures, on sense making. I mean, uh, there's a lot of critical thinking. The work that you guys do is not light. And you focus on human centered design, which is also yet another big and important item. So I wanted you to address uh, the thought process. So are, how are they different in a sense? 
or how do they mesh together inside the confines of the guild so that you can produce the work that you do? Yeah, it's a great question, Ram. It's it's one candidly that um, is the strength, but it's also one of the things that we wrestle with, right? We have people that come into us and they are card carrying members of one tribe or another uh, of either a future school or a planning school or a policy school, which is great. I mean, we love deep, deep expertise, but in my mind, in my opinion, I think Sylvia will uh, bear me out on this one as well. You know, looking into the future, you need a toolbox of different tools and approaches and tactics. And so, you know, we've tried to bring almost like the United Nations of futurists and future thinkers and foresighters under one roof. Um, right now, we're in the midst of actually building the full, what if we did a subway map of how do we make sense of the future? What does that look like? And what would be the key subway hubs? Um, I think it's when we do our analysis and reports, it's often driven by, you know, some of the people that are leading it. We can't escape our pedigrees, but the fact that we do it together, we do it globally, uh, means that if you are a forecaster and you've been put into a project with somebody that is a future fiction writer, you're going to come up with some really interesting collisions in terms of your projects. And, and certainly myself and my work with Sylvia is, is case in point. We're not the same people. We've come from two different parts of the world. Uh, we have different tactics that we use, but somehow when I do work with Sylvia within kind of our world and other worlds, um, it turns into magic. Um, there's just a, a great way that we can just completely do a pincer movement around a topic or another. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite heartened by that. I think that is very important uh, when you, you know, because you have to think through so many different angles. And I appreciate that you guys are big proponents of human-centered design, right? One of my pet peeves is people put so much time and effort talking about the Internet of Things, whereas I think we should be talking about the Internet of People, right? Uh, things are things. Let the things be. Well, I'm glad that the things talk to each other, but I'm not so interested in what they say to each other. I'm more interested about what you say to me, what Sylvia tells me, or what we tell the audience. So it's the internet should be internet of people, right? Not internet of things. I don't care about the things. Let them be. They're, they're the vacuum cleaners. Let them <laughs> clean the floor. But uh, we need to, you know, improve the way in which we think. We need to have more people like you uh, to you know, facilitate dialogue, to provoke dialogue, to cause discussion, and not uh, all the time we agree. And besides, exactly because we don't agree is because I think we push each other on the right way, right? Uh, you know, constructive criticism helps. And I think uh, knowledge uh, does advance because of people like you and the approach uh, that you guys propose. Now, um, I could not have an interview with any one of you without asking this question, right? So does foresight matter, Sean? I should just do a deadpan right now and go, no, it doesn't matter at all. We, uh, we really don't care. Um, yes, it matters. Of course it matters. Uh, I why? think it, maybe your question is the why. And I, I know I just wrote a post about the 20 reasons why it matters. So if you, you jump on our Gray Swan medium, I'm sure you'll get a full heft of that. But I think more than any other time in history, you're, it's interesting you brought up your caveman example. Pretty much a caveman lived, you know, every 100,000 years to every 100,000 years, pretty much the same way with, with some various instruments that uh, may have changed their world. I'm sure fire had something to do with improving their lot. Nowadays, oh my God, nowadays, if you look at just the pace of change, and my company does a 
basket of factors over the last 20 years. And essentially, you know, never mind technology that's going at great speed. You know, we are four times faster as a society now than we were 20 years ago. So if you look at a movie 20 years ago, that movie might have been number one in a box office for the, the last 10, 11, 12 weeks. Now the average movie stays there for, for borderline one, maybe two weeks. And so that is a really interesting metaphor for how fast things have become aided by technology. And then all of a sudden you get a much more complex world since we're all global and we all have all our, our society is almost built on a tower of stilts. And so if you look at the pandemic, sure, there were signs that it could happen, but think about what's actually gone on in our lives. Um, I love the quote. Sometimes we, we overestimate the amount of change that happens in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. And so we need people in business, society, politics, education, having a somewhat longer term view, uh, greater certainly than the one week of a political or a news cycle, and actually trying to think about, okay, how are my actions today going to affect uh, my either wealth, health, uh, or, or altruism for tomorrow? And so I think that's, as a general rule, the stakes are much larger, things have got much faster. And because people don't do it enough, um, there are really advantages and knowledge arbitrages for actually getting ahead of the future. Okay, well, uh, Sylvia, I'm not gonna leave you alone on that question. I will <laughs> direct a question to you. So why do you think for foresight or future studies matter? Well, on many levels, I, I do think it's matter. It can be individually, it can be collectively. Um, I really like to study both aspects because uh, foresight or what we more largely call futures thinking when we think about futures literacy and addressing every people. I think it's, it's like a therapy. It's being able to not be scared about the future, to be prepared about it, to be welcoming it and to be part of it. So there's really a sense of agency at the core of foresight and future thinking. And I think that's why it matters, because it makes us agent of our future and not just passive towards the future. And then collectively, I think it's part of aligning uh, our goals, deciding together what we, we want to be as a, as a species, as a collectivity, as a community, uh, as a um, yeah, as group of people living together. So um, it enables us to, to think within um, a framework um, and not just being left alone, not understanding what is going on and being left alone. So I really do think it's, it's a very uh, action-oriented um, therapy. <laughs> yes, I think it's therapeutic as well. So uh, Sean, I have a question. So Ray from Orlando uh, on LinkedIn chat. Uh, so you're talking about uh, people joining the guild and the benefits they have. So if I am a business, what kind of benefits would I have by joining the Graceland Guild? Yeah, um, it's a great question, Ray. Um, I think it probably falls into two or three different camps. There are people that just come to the guild and like to participate and graze on what we do. And that's fine. Uh, you know, the, the preponderance of people love our events and, and steal whatever they want out of it and take it into their own lives. Um, so many people kind of view the guild as almost an experimental ground for, okay, what don't I know about the world? What can others tell me? There's a separate group of people that come in and actually actively participate in some of our projects. So if, if all of a sudden you're in uh, you're in the future of food business, um, well, we got a project on that. You can actually work with 12 of the smartest people around the world on the future of food. And by consequence, you not only produce something together, but hopefully get much smarter in the process. 
I think so, the final and then the final thing is just networking with with people around the world that I'll say this again and again. It's like uh, I know my subject pretty well, but every time I do a Grace Wong Guild event, I end up being much more informed uh, and much more caring about the world around me. I, I think it's a, a really Ram, you had mentioned a couple of things about just the human factor of things. I think it's really, really important that we not only surface great conclusions, but we also um, do them together. Now, you mentioned the future of food, right? So how does it work? Do you have like specific topics? And uh, I joined, but I want to talk about only one of the topics or, or I talk about all of the topics. How does it work? We have, uh, well, uh, being in a room with two French-speaking uh, people, we have uh, things that we call every month ateliers, which, of course, you'll both know as a French, uh, fancy French word for workshop. Um, we do have themed approaches every month. Um, four times a year, we do massively uh, large events. So the, the next three that are coming up in November, we have, we're covering 20 hours of coverage. So I guarantee uh, you, or, or if Ray, uh, if it came from uh, his question, um, certainly that there's a topic in those 20 that we're going to cover in our 20 hours of coverage in November. We have this thing in February that's going to be called the Battle of the Sense-Making Cities. So we're going to pit eight wow. cities off on each other and hopefully we'll award the, the most sense-making city around the world. And then we're crazy enough in April where on our anniversary of our guild, we do uh, 24 hours of activity. And so some fun, some very important some um some other things and so um it kind of creeps around the world it's almost like the you know how the what is it the earth hour kind of creeps around the world as people are in darkness we're kind of doing the same thing in april that's good oh you know it's really sounding really interesting uh i want to change uh the questions a little bit so uh, you're running this very large guild two thousand people diverse backgrounds, uh, you know, different education, different perspectives, uh, different worldviews, right? Uh, I want to hear that it can't possibly be very easy for you to run the guild. What kind of challenges do you face in leading a guild or this specific guild? And this is, a, is this my support group here? This, uh, I, I'm going to start crying now. I oh, said therapy, right? So, hey, that's it's total therapy in front of what? 10,000 people that watch this, we were saying. Um, Remember, no, it's, it's uh, recorded, so more people will watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's both a reward in terms of, you know, I, I, I meet great people like Sylvia. Sylvia was there from the start. And I'm like, uh, God, like, uh, I am so much more informed about the world of futures now than I was two years ago. So there are so many great things about it. I must say, you know, people come into the guild with so many different professional backgrounds and different disciplines and opinions on things that, you know, um, we call them guardrails. We like to um, at least have a few things that we can all agree on. Uh, I, I loved your rules off the top of your uh, our bod, our webcast here today, where you were saying like no hate speech and no other things. We have about twelve of them. They're loose. We have a a, a group um, that um, acts as kind of like ombudsman, if you will, that if, if there are conflicts or challenges between people, they step in and actually try to play some of those roles. And really, I think more important than anything is in nearly every one of our meetings, we mention our values. Uh, in most companies, those values are the things that stay on your wall as a placard. Nobody ever can spit them back out again. We um, kind of reinforce those at every single turn. And we see it in our programming. Like um, every single one of our meetings starts with good news. Like whether it makes sense with the topic or not, we're a can-do optimistic group of people. And so we've created a ritual amongst ourselves that every one of our meetings will start with good news because 
because man, certain days it's tough to find it, right? Yeah, actually, you know, um, I've always been a professional forecaster and I tell people at the onset of the meeting when they're very nervous, yes, the world indeed will end. The sun is going to expand into a supernova and it's going to engulf the, the earth and it's going to blow up. But scientists forecast that's going to be a billion years from now. We are not going to be around. So let's relax, forget about the end of the world, and let's focus on some, some positive things that will help us go through the day. Yes, the world will win, but not today. You know, let's, let's uh, relax a little bit. It's important that you bring some... So I'm not meaning uh, Pollyannish in a Pollyannish way, but it's important to have a, a positive view of the world so that we can look at the constructive end and how we put you know, our, our, our strengths together. How can we make a better world? I think this is the goal of all of us here in foresight and futurism is in envisioning a better world, right? Some, we want to leave our kids and our grandkids a better world, a nicer world than when we inherited, right? So I think we have to have a, a view of, you know, a positive view. How can we build, construct as opposed to take away or, or, or destroy? So I appreciate that you start with this, this moment of good news or, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's something to spark and brighten the day, uh, and that gets, gets our spirits up, and, and I think the workflow is a lot easier, right? It's really tough to ply your trade as a futurist and be a total pessimist, because, I mean, I don't know if you remember Winnie the Pooh, but you kind of walk around life like Eeyore the donkey, like it just everything is so troubling, and the future is not going to be any better. I think Sylvia chime in here, too. I, I think futurists, by, by definition, have to be optimists, don't they? I can share some some more stories with you. I, I, it's a pity that uh, my friend Paul Thomas is not here in the room with me. Uh, he he writes uh, frequently, but when we worked together, uh, my nickname was Doctor Doom. So <laughs> I worked for for manufacturing. I had my job was to say that everything is cloudy and we are about to enter a downfall. And he worked for marketing, so his job was to say everything is bright and uh, everything's going to be bad, even though we're about to enter a recession. So we had wonderful conversations. But being economists. We had two economists in the room when you end up with three, sometimes four dissenting opinions. So, but I, I, I am an optimistic, you know, I, I, I am a believer. Uh, I'm a believer on, it's not playing Kool-Aid. Uh, I think it's important. So uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, some of your successes, uh, your big successes. What is your claim to fame? Well, I think growth by itself. I mean, we don't need to be a big organization that it wasn't our mission to begin with. And in, in some respects, the, the bigger we grow, the tougher it is for me. But it is a reflection of just, you know, how our content, how our experience are hitting people. So we're now in 85 countries around the world and, and, and you know, handpick people. From the start, people said, look, don't broadcast, don't advertise what you do. Like we want to refer people into this world. Um, and some people come in and like they go, wow, not my thing. But We've been able to um, to establish real beachhead of of completely wonderful, solid thinkers from around the world. We're now at a point in time where the level of activities just continue. We have about sixty events that are planned in the guild over the next six months. It's uh, it's just a carousel of interesting, different things. So the actual cadence of what's going on, you feel the smell of the place or virtual places. It is that things are going great, and now. Beyond all the different reports and activities we've done, we've we've surfaced a couple of different groups. One of the things we've locked on, Ram, is in an independent network like ours, finding groups of 8, 12, 16 people that want to work together on projects. And so uh, there's one right now that 
Sylvia was so passionate about that we're uh, we're going to launch into, which is all about sense making and futurism for teens and children. Right? Oh. How do we equip tomorrow's minds to actually start understanding how to process this stuff now? Which um, didn't make our short list. And then Sylvia just completely cut me out by the legs and said, we need to do this. And so uh, she's, as always, Sylvia's right. So. Yes. <laughs> I worked with her before. Yes. She's End right. point. She's right. <laughs> Good. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, some of your final thoughts, I wanted to ask you a very specific kind of question. So, and I know it's, again, I'm not being Pollyannish, but what are you most excited about the future? Mm, yeah. What no. excites well, you the most? Well, okay. So I'll answer it quickly because I know you're in an hour format here. Um, there's the personal and there's the professional. So from a personal standpoint, um, I got to say as a mild extrovert, uh, these last two years have been quite difficult, right? Uh, I think, you know, so personally, just, you know, I think we've gone through the two phases of reacting and trying to recover from this pandemic. I am so extraordinarily excited about how do we reimagine ourselves on the other side of this pandemic? Uh, my hope is, you know, I'm an optimist again. You know, it'll be like the 1920s. Like we had to have World War One, and we had to have the Spanish flu to turn into the roaring 1920s where things got a lot more interesting and a lot more uh, interesting parties and things happen around the world. I think professionally, uh, what I would love to do is improve the craft of uh, futurism and sense making. I think um, it's way too tribal. Uh, people don't necessarily talk uh, enough to each other. And at the end of the day, what do clients want? What do governments want? What do educators want? They don't want a particular school or another. They want the best, the best tools and a landscape of the best tools that can make them think a little bit more clearly and boldly about the future. And my hope is the Gray Swan Guild is part of uh, advancing that agenda. Now, what keeps you up at night? Who uh, will my basketball team, the Toronto Raptors, be good this year? But uh, I will allow that one to go uh, for the time being. I think um, that's a great question, Ron. Did I know I was going to get this question? I don't know if I did, but I'm going to say, um, you know, what if it, what if it doesn't turn out the way that we think, right? You know, you know we've talked about you know, mass resignations and the fact that people are finally empowered about themselves, about taking control of their jobs and reappraising how they spend their time. What keeps me up at night is what if all those opinions are wrong? What if um, we turn into an economic downturn? What if mass resignations turns into mass terminations? What if computers put us out of a job? And so as much as I, I have one very optimistic eye looking over here, I have one very rational eye of you know, our, our society is built on a tower of stilts and you take what one of them uh, we've seen over the last two years, how difficult it can be. What is that next stilt that might be taken out from under our legs? So that's that's probably what keeps me up at night. Yeah, actually, so it's a constant. Uh, so we are members of the Association, Association of Professional Futurists. So we often talk about technology. So in, in the past, we thought about technology as it's a productivity thing, but now it's taking away jobs. So we have to reorganize society. We have to reorganize ourselves in, in a different way, I guess, uh, so that uh, we can survive the next uh, technological revolution or the one we are surviving. So Sean Moffat, uh, Grace Van Guild, thank you so very much for your time. I hope um, to work with you and I hope to see you again some other time. This was extraordinarily pleasant, Rom. Thanks for the form and uh, appreciate all your effort. Thank you so much. 
So we'll uh, transition a little bit. Um, let's uh, once more, uh, let's uh, welcome Silvia. Silvia, I think on, you're muted. Oh, you're unmuted. Great. So let's welcome uh, Silvia Galosa. Silvia, welcome to the show. It's uh, great to have you here. Love your work. Uh, please, uh, I would like to start. Can you say a few words about silicon humanism? What is silicon humanism? Thank you for asking. And just before before I describe silicon humanism, I, I wanted to say there couldn't be a better introduction than one from Sean for this event. So thank you so much, Sean, <laughs> to be here. Um, and also, we talked about therapy. We talk about support group. I think uh, Grace Van Guild has been my support group during the pandemic. And this has already been a pleasure to, to work with you. So I'm, I'm so happy we were able to, to have this joint event today and have you here, Sean. Um, so yeah, as you know, my name is Sylvia. I'm a global futurist. Um, I'm the founder of Silicon Humanism. I'm based in Silicon Valley, California. And I dedicate my research to the future of work, um, education, and lifelong learning, well-aging, uh, and the future of the home uh, with a specific uh, focus on mental health. Um, I have a background in social science, uh, strategy consulting, and I'm also a certified uh, foresight practitioner, which is our topic today. And these past 15 years, um, I've been helping hundreds of companies on their strategies, starting with Accenture's and different startup accelerator. I'm also a writer of future fiction, and I'm an active member and board member at Grace Van Gill, as you could understand. Um, but related to your question and the concept of uh, silicon humanism, well, it, it emerged at first um, around 2015 as a natural extension to my work. And the idea is that it covers um, the intersection between uh, technology and humanism, as well as the potential uh, implications of living in a technology supercharged world, uh, the impact on our humanity and the impact on our social life. So in our research, we focus on examining um, these aspects. Um, we, we like to, the idea is um, to engage uh, in a dialogue between science and technology in all of humanity. So it's very uh, multidisciplinary. Uh, we like to introduce history, anthropology, uh, sociology, mental health, moral psychology, philosophy, you know about it. <laughs> um, so I would say that Silicon humanism defines itself as a global and holistic approach. And that's why it's inherently um, multidisciplinary based on the conviction that because we have these different lenses, these different perspectives and methodologies, this will enrich our process, our thought processes, and also limit our biases. Oh, and yes. finally, maybe uh, just one, one last aspect, because we were talking about agency just previously, which is at the core of foresight. I also do believe that what we aim at doing with silicon humanism, it's a, it's a call to action. It's a call to replace the human component uh, at the center, at the core of our technological advancement with technology as a partner more than a threat. And you were talking about being uh, optimistic or pessimistic. Um, uh, futurist, and I do believe um, in nuances. I do believe in silver linings. I like to explore darker scenarios, but see how we can get out of it, or how we can still ref refine our humanity in, in such uh, areas. And I like to talk about uh, tech-free bubbles or connection to other people, to nature, and so on, even if, if we have to integrate uh, technology in our future. Good. So I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about the thought process, right? So the same way we describe, you know, uh, here's the, the clear path on the jungle, here's the, the itchy tree, here's the free lunch, right? 
So can mm -hmm. you describe to me a little bit what is the methodological framework of silicon humanism? Sure. So I've integrated different um, different aspects um, because I started in strategy consulting, but have this background in social science. Uh, also, I'm very keen to writing fiction. So I try to, to kind of design a process which integrates uh, all these components, because once again, I think that's what makes our thought process uh, more robust. Uh, so the, the first phase usually is really the multidisciplinary thinking. That's where I will look at history. So I will look back in a sense to better look forward. I will look at sociology, anthropology. So the idea is not just to look at what is changing, but also at what is constant, what is not uh, evolving, what has been there since the beginning of, of humanity. Um, the second thing is when I, I have laid uh, that's groundwork, then I will start looking for signals of the future. And this will help me uh, to pinpoint drivers, uh, nation trends and inflection points. So the idea is really to, to catch these trends very early in the process because before they, they are even available in big data and so on. And from there, I will start uh, extrapolating and building scenarios and doing some world building. And here the idea is ready to project stakeholders into the future of the industry. Uh, we will work with tools, and, and I love um, Sean that we are working on, on, on building that toolbox and making available all the tools we're using in Foresight. A, a few I really like are the futures will, uh, the mapping of the future, using personae, using description like a day in the life of someone in the future. I also use um, guided uh, envisioning, similar to guided meditation, where uh, I will really help uh, project um, stakeholders uh, imagine the future through the all five senses. How does it smell? How does it sound? How does it look like? The colors uh, and so on. This is this is great. Yeah, and usually just for the two last step from there, we create artifacts also because mm -hmm. artifacts, products from the future are, are also a wonderful way to have people react to what everyday life could look like in that future. And then, and I already mentioned it because for me, that's maybe the most important one is how from that future we backcast, we come back to the current present, how we target areas of opportunities in the future, and then we uh, design action planning to go towards those preferred futures. So it's, I think this is a great tool. I don't know if everybody in the audience understands, but you know, you forecast to go to the future and then you backcast. So what Steve is trying to say is she's going to tell us which steps we need to take in order to get there. So you go forward and then you go backwards. And then we think about well, how do you get, you say, A, J. No, no, no. There's B, there's C, there's D, there's E. There's. So we go through that. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, switch topics a little bit because you are passionate about so many of them. So, and you do write a lot about mental health. So uh, what role does mental health play in your research? And how did you come up to focus on that topic, actually? Can you explain or elaborate a little bit? I think that was absolutely conjunctural. It happens probably at first because of the pandemic and, you know, the fact that it's defined as a pandemic within the pandemic, this mental health crisis. Also, there were a lot of signals and by studying and scanning for signals, you just find that topping being really a new trend uh, this past two years. Uh, you know, like tennis competitions, Olympics, you had uh, athletes giving up competitions in favor of self-care. Um, also the fact that mental health isn't a shameful 
matter uh, anymore. It's not a private matter anymore. You open up about it to friends, family, employers, and society at large. So we cannot keep on um, ignoring the topic. Then in the data, of course, you look at the data. And even before the pandemic, uh, the report from the National Alliance on Mental Illness was quite alarming with one in five people in the U.S., Sorry for being US centric here, uh, but one in five people in the US uh, were experiencing uh, mental illness and almost uh, half of the time associated with anxiety disorders. And with, with the pandemic, with COVID, what happened is that this anxiety increased by 50%. So today it's, it's like um, a phenomenon, it's not just a minority. And, um, you know, every every May, uh, there's a mental health awareness month. And really the, the focus last year was not just awareness, but action, really going towards action. And personally, what, what I, I've been conducting in that field is working with psychologists in Arizona. Uh, we've been discussing, as we were saying at the beginning, our future thinking can actually be a therapy. And instead of being scared about the future, uh, we can be prepared uh, how to make our future self, which is usually strange to us, become a partner um, and so on. And, and two aspects I've been studying um, in relationship to mental health is naturally the home, because most of us spend a lot of time in our home, sometimes in comfortable home, but most of the time in toxic homes or non-resilient homes. Um, so that, that's been really a topic. And the second aspect is work and work in relation to the home as well. How can our um, employers help us take care of ourselves in, in such a context? Wonderful. I want to uh, change topics a little bit because this is something that you write quite a lot about. I mean, you actually published one of your articles in The Future of the Home, where you describe the future of the home, a way to envision the future of the home. So, and I know this past year, you dedicated a lot of your time to research uh, the future of the home, to come up with the concept or explain a potential view of the future of the home. So, uh, without trying to run you amok. What are your perspectives on our post-pandemic homes? So first of all, thank you for, for publishing the article in, uh, in uh, IMCI um, two months ago. That was wonderful. Also wanted to mention that I am actually working with Sean on that topic. So he's as knowledgeable as I am on the topic. Um, but I would say um, what was interesting for me is really to integrate the fact that the home is not just a structure. Because mostly in the past, we've been thinking about the home uh, in terms of real estate, in terms of uh, home design, in terms of, you know, the, the structures, how it's built, the materials, the equipment. But I also wanted to focus on the intangibles, what I call the intangibles, how we live together, the home life, or sometimes how we live alone also at home, how we conduct our activities at home. It's about working, learning, socializing, consuming, leisuring, caring, fighting also, or trying to escape the home. So I, I write all about it uh, in a research paper called um, uh, Four Archetypes of Future Homes. And I'm really trying to identify four uh, types of future home. And maybe where I disrupt a little from existing, um, existing uh, literature on this, that I just... I don't just consider the super smart home or the, you know, the green home of the future, which is transparent and open to the world. 
this is part of it. But I also really consider the toxic homes, which is actually um, the more prevalent homes in the stock of homes over the world. Uh, and also the bunker home in the sense of people really retreating and closing from the exterior. And what I want to kind of push as a positive or preferred future is uh, what I call the safe haven, which is a home which is still open to the exterior, where you can feel good by staying in it, but also good by leaving it and coming back to it. So there's a lot of study around domestic violence, physical abuse, uh, toxic work from home environment and loneliness, that type of thing. And there's a big notion at the center of that study also. It's, it's the idea of resilience, the resilience of the home as material, but also the resilience of the home as welcoming you and enabling you to have uh, this mental health preserved, the one we were just talking about. Yeah, so I wanted to um, go back to that specific topic because mm-hmm. uh, you actually, uh, mental health, and, and you write a lot about aging. And in your writing, you come up with the concept of well-aging. So can you explain to us what is well-aging? What is that concept? Absolutely. Incidence of, of mental health also absolutely uh, correlate with well-aging. And how it started, I, as I was saying, I, I've been consulting with quite many startups in that area. And the, the concept of aging in place versus aging in nursing homes uh, was really key to me as to understand where uh, we have the best quality of life or our end of life. Um, and I came up with this example of uh, villages. Um, which is a community in which you really have intergenerational uh, help and support. You would have, for example, the 70-year-old helping the 90-year-old with um, designing their IT network at home or or helping with grocery shopping and so on. So I've been really uh, interested in studying these villages and um, how the streets are are made um, accessible. Also, how you can have signals um, next to the red lights uh, for the people who cannot hear that well and so on. So I've really been interested to study not just the technology in terms of uh, life extension or transhumanism. And of course, this is a part of it because this will help us kind of extend our our lifetime. But at the same time, there are a lot of our uh, components. And once again, that's the multidisciplinary aspect of it. And and that's uh, the holistic approach. We can work on our sleep, on our nutrition, uh, on our exercising, on intellectual or spiritual nourishment, uh, feeling uh, productive within uh, the social sphere, um, especially in this intergenerational aspect, maybe the elder uh, can help um, the, the younger ones um, take care of their own children. There can be um, like reciprocity and not just seeing aging as the end of a process, but really as a process integrated within uh, all the lives. So that, that was really what, what interested me in studying this. Wonderful. So I wanted to change gears a little bit and ask you a different kind of question. So you wrote this article for the Harvard Business Review France about the future of work. And in it, you mentioned trust as the cornerstone of the future of work. Could you please explain your statement? Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for, for mentioning it. So I've been working uh, about it with uh, David Kellys, which, which is actually living in France and teaching uh, future studies in France. And what we did is we made a comparative study uh, between uh, the role of working from home uh, in California and working from home in France, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, it was very quickly adopted in most of 
at least in the big tech companies in California, whereas in France, there were a lot of challenges. So we tried to understand what the history of these two countries and what is the meaning of the corporate uh, workplace um, in these countries. And what was interesting, uh, of course, now it, it seems so, so natural when I say it, but really by the time people were just all about uh, going to work. But if you look back, you realize it's really a pretty uh, recent invention to go to work. Like the invention of, of the workplace is maybe 120 years old. Um, and and during the pandemic, this accentuation of remote, remote work, some saw it as a disruption from something they think are always existed, whereas in some other parts, it was already uh, reintegrated, such as in California. And we were wondering why does it work in California and by the time not so much in France. And really the focus was around trust. We realized that there's a whole thing around building a trust relationship. And if um, working from home become uh, being feeling surveilled, uh, that can really, once again, we go to mental health issues, that can really raise a lot of mental health issues. Like the fact that uh, you will feel always uh, surveyed, always uh, supervised in all your actions. And there are a lot of tools actually going in that direction. So that, that was kind of scary for a lot of people. Um, mm. So we studied trust really at, at the core of that uh, relationship. We studied it also from a sociological angle, going back to the Keynes um, definition of a social fact. We studied uh, remote work really as a social fact, how uh, it relates to more than, than just um, a practice, but really um, it's part of our identity, it's part of how we behave in a social environment, it's a set of norms and customs, it applies pressure onto the individuals. And, um, and actually in California, what was interesting is if you never rely on remote work, and I mean before the pandemic, it was even, even strange, like, I mean, it, it's really part of the lifestyle here. Uh, whereas it was not the case in France. So all this was really interesting um, to, to consider. I'm glad to hear. So I want to talk to you about one of your other passions. So I want to talk about the Association of Professional Futurists and the work you do there, right? So you launched the Ethics and Philosophy of Futures within the APF, right? We're, we are members. So what motivated you? What's your objective? What are you trying to achieve with that series? Absolutely. That, that's interesting. Maybe I, I will go back to something you said at the beginning of the conversation about the Internet of Things or the Internet of People. And I think just by, by asking these questions, you're philosophizing about uh, the future. Um, when you go back and look at philosophy of technology over time, there's been different uh, definition of technology. Technology as an instrument, uh, technology as something we can control, something that can control us. And there's a lot all lot uh, area of philosophy, which is about technology as mediation between individuals and how it builds our worldview and so on. So, for example, that, that's how I start philosophizing, like just understanding in which direction we go and so on. Uh, so I was really interested into adding this philosophical questioning uh, within my framework. So for one of, of, um, of the conference last year, which was uh, the Global Foresight Summit, uh, I decided to focus on this. Um, like how the future has been addressed by philosophy. And by studying philosophy, you cross ethics, which is a branch of philosophy. And it was really about, we cannot think about the future without considering the ethical consequences. We cannot let technology uh, launch anything without measuring the impacts of it. 
Um, so the conference was well received and what happened is that APF reached out to me after that and we started um, because they had similar uh, conversation and similar ideas. So we launched uh, this uh, ethics, um, sorry, philosophy and ethics of futures group about four months ago. And actually, Rome, you were one of our speakers talking about the future of wars and autonomous weapons and what it means if, if we push it to the extreme or what does it mean for, for our way to conduct wars. We had one around uh, bioethics. We have one coming up around uh, AI ethics. So yeah, the idea is really to talk about uh, ethics, morals of machines, and also very important, our role as uh, foresight practitioners and futurists um, in being uh, ethical. What does it mean when we talk about ethical futures? Do we have an obligation uh, to, to be um, to push, to recommend uh, ethical futures, or should we be just tool ourselves and just present the most objective uh, view we can have on the future? Wonderful. Well, I cannot let you go without talking to one other of your passions, right? So uh, you're very passionate about ocean sustainability. Um, you're involved in the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. You're a mentor to several ocean tech startups, right? Why ocean sustainability is so important? Why do you care so much about this? Yeah, I would say I have actually two two passion. One is uh, space and one is the deep sea. And I think they really mirror each other because they are the two next uh, way uh, of our exploration. Um, and I know there's always this debate, why go in space and explore so far when we don't even know all that is in our um, deep sea oceans. And, and there are a lot of initiatives actually in the realm of futurism, which are really exciting. How can we build undersea hotels, for example? Uh, could we imagine living undersea if there was a catastrophe uh, on, on the surface of the earth and that type of thing? But on a very um, much concrete aspect of it, there are a lot of um, issues and challenges today in terms of sustainability of our oceans uh, with tons of plastics. Every every year uh, we find tons of plastic at the bottom of the ocean and we can clean it and clean it, it will never be enough. So we need more sustainable solution to deal with that. Uh, also, you are talking about the future of the food in relation to the future of the food. How can we have fisheries uh, that are more sustainable? How can we use maybe alga to make a natural product and so on? So there are a lot of, of subtopics. And what I do uh, within the Sustainable Ocean Alliance, as you were saying, is, is mentoring actually uh, those startups and um, help them um, on their competitive analysis, understanding <laughs> And that's quite fortunate to talk about competitive analysis here, but help them understand how they fit within a bigger model and how to make sure they don't lose that vision they have. Because usually with entrepreneurs, when I work with entrepreneurs, they have wonderful ideas at the beginning of the process and absolutely uh, fantastic mission statements and, and vision but what happens and then they get caught in the everyday life of um, of the business and, and raising funding and finding customers and so on. And they lose track of why they built uh, the companies or, or they, they find a great opportunity, which is not really correlated with their um, core mission. So how should they choose something that makes sense uh, with their strategy and not just uh, because it's a good opportunity that rise up right now um so we talk about this and i really try to and I'm, I'm really happy also because for me it's a source of signals like working with this innovative company i discover a lot about what's happening in the field and that also brings me signal to enrich my own um envisioning of the future of the future so wonderful so in kind of you know closing thoughts i'm going to ask you for advice so 
if I want to know more, if the audience wants to know more about the sustainability of the oceans or about the future of the home or the future of the work or about silicon humanism, where do I go from here? I would say my my core um, social network is LinkedIn. I do almost everything on LinkedIn. I'm very not present on Twitter or Facebook. So if you want to reach out to me, uh, LinkedIn is definitely the best. We also have a Silicon Humanism page uh, with 3,000 uh, followers. And that's where um, I kind of share everything that we're doing in the field. And if you want to join the effort, uh, well, I'd be really happy to welcome you um, my Silicon uh, Humanism page. Thank you so very much. Well. Uh, about 20% uh, of the people who listen uh, are from France. So, merci beaucoup pour votre présentation aujourd'hui. Merci beaucoup, Jean. Merci beaucoup, Sylvia. It uh, was an uh, honor and a pleasure uh, to have you here. Thank you so much for dedicating uh, time uh, from your busy agendas to come and talk to the listeners. So, hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Jean. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Merci. Thank merci beaucoup. Okay, so let's uh, go back to our agenda. We had uh, our discussion. We had, uh, you know, Sean Moffat from the Grace One Guild. Uh, we had Sylvia Galliser from Silicon Humanism. And we, we heard a little bit about them and, and their thoughts. Uh, looks like uh, we have a couple more uh, questions that I got from uh, Facebook. I just saw them uh, because we at the top of the hour. I will forward the questions uh, to the guests. And I will respond to you in the comment box uh, on, on Facebook. So no worries. Uh, I will get your questions. Uh, they, will, uh, they will indeed uh, see your questions and we're going to get to them. Okay. I want to share a little bit about the upcoming events. So uh, one of them is going to be the University Cooperation Partnerships. So how do they work and how to get the best out of them? Right. Uh, I have several talks uh, in or around technology. One of them will focus, or maybe two of them will focus on metaverse. I've been getting a lot of requests about the metaverse universe. Uh, yes, no, maybe, and how it's going to work. Uh, we will continue the discussion over sustainability. Maybe Silva will be passionate enough to come back to talk about the oceans. So uh, we did have uh, one from you know sustainability in high tech. Uh, we have one coming up on the logistics, and then maybe we should uh, revisit, revisit uh, in greater depth the sustainability of the oceans. I have several authors coming by, so Fouad Benyub, uh, George Joya, Martin Schwern of Finland. Uh, Martin also, his big data book is out, uh, and he's an expert in VR and on Metaverse, so it should be an interesting uh, dialogue. Uh, I will be covering several of the markets and markets events, and that means I will have uh, yet uh, many more interesting speakers coming to the show and have a discussion with us. So I got a few messages regarding the timing of the show. So the 9 a.m. Pacific, why do I pick this time zone? Well, because it's convenient. Uh, people in the West Coast already fielded the first calls of the day, and it's it's 9 a.m., so they can dedicate uh, in a one hour for professional development. Uh, it is uh, basically noontime in Toronto and in New York, so people are munching through the food or munching through lunch as they listen to us, and they they send comments or questions well not sean sean wasn't eating he was talking and he was paying attention he wasn't talking with his mouth full he's a very polite man it is uh, 6 p.m in berlin in, in central europe so people are having a beer uh, they're at home they are listening to us and it's 9 30 p.m evening in india so they're having their warm gulab jamu and tea and they are listening to us uh but i realize it's not very convenient in israel because it's past sundown on a Friday. 
So I work with my good friend, Arthur Weiss, and we are coming up with a series of events that will take place on Thursday. So it's still going to be the, my 9 a.m., which means it's uh, Tel Aviv, 7 p.m., but it's a Thursday evening, not a Friday evening. So it should be okay and should be convenient. So the first topic we're lining up is counterintelligence. There are several um, other topics that I'm lining up. But uh, in this note, I want to wish you all a Shabbat Shalom and a wonderful weekend. And I'm going to move to the closing slide. Again, I want to one more time. Thank you so very much. Thank you, the guests, for uh, taking time out of their busy schedules to be with us today. Uh, thank you so much for uh, watching, participating. Uh, I know a lot, a lot of you listen through Spotify or uh, watch on YouTube uh, afterwards. So thank you so much. Don't forget to leave your comments and questions. Even after the show is over, I will go through all of the comments. I will answer and I will uh, give it back to the guests. So if there are other questions, uh, they will certainly address it even after the show. You can uh, reach out to me into the magazine via Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or LinkedIn, um, or all of the above. Um, they are they are all um, all available to you. Again, uh, thank you so very much for being with us today, investing your time with all of us. It's an honor and a privilege to have you. And I'm gonna end the show with our institutional message. Thank you so much. <laughs>